Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. I think uh, one of the things that is still an obstacle for many people um, accepting uh, the Bible and the uh, faith in a, in a creator God and um, the um, amazing uh, life of um, of God as He came to to Earth as as a human as as Jesus Christ, it's it's hard for people to you know perhaps accept this was Jesus really God, and of course we one of the reasons that we have as evidence for this of course are the the, the huge increase in Christianity or the Christian message, the gospel, after the death of Jesus. And this was based on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that um, he appeared to so many people in person, he taught again, um, met with his disciples, and the disciples uh, saw him um, change, lifted up from the earth uh, with the angels and... um, which is we call you know translation, and this is of course the hope that Jesus gave to us um, with his message that God loves us all and wants us to choose him. Um, you know God has obviously you know the Bible talks about how God made the earth and sustains the earth and and sets up purpose. But even though God sets up purpose and may use people in different ways, God still leaves open the the choice for us to make that decision um, to to follow him. And um, I heard a a very interesting uh, sermon over the weekend on, on Sabbath that even with Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, he had the choice to repent and choose God's salvation, but he didn't. So even though he was used and in, in a way he was predestined to betray Jesus, the, what he did doesn't ever, or what uh, God, how God uh, uses people in, in, in ways doesn't eliminate their ability to make a choice um, to follow him and be saved. And hence we have the, the text that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We can make that choice. Now this, on the, on the basis of this, the, the picture that is, um, is given is that one day we will, even the, the, all, all the people have died that have chosen, made this choice to want to be with God, to want to be um, you know, a, a good person, a person who doesn't do bad and, and evil, evil things. And we know that you know, there's so much badness in the world, sin, badness entered, evil entered, um, according to the Bible account, uh, back um, uh, just after creation, with what we call the fall, and and I'm, I'm sure that most listeners know this this story as well. Um, and so there's been a battle between uh, good and evil down through the ages. But all that all that time, we've had the choice to choose to follow God, choose to do the right thing, and. Jesus' message was that he came and died, took the punishment in our place, and we can choose to uh, follow him. So I think one of the issues that 
that stop people from accepting this message because we have so much evidence that, you know, Jesus lived, the, the calendar is essentially based on his life and, and so forth, and the rise of Christianity, the testimony of so many Christians of how uh, faith in Christ has changed their lives for the better. And um, all this is this powerful evidence, but still, um, for many people, it's what about evolution? What about, um, you know, the, the Bible says that God created us and, and only thousands of years ago. How can that be when we have all this evidence for long ages and, and, and evolution in the fossil record, all the different creatures that as you go up through the layers, they seem more developed and so forth? I think one of the answers to this, uh, of course, um, can be found in the evidence that we have that evolution is impossible because in creation is very important because if well, after we've died, when Jesus returns, if we're going to be recreated, God has, that, has to have that ability to recreate us again, to reform us even after, uh, after we've died from... Uh, and we may have been burned, uh, our ashes may have been thrown in the sea, or we may have been you know, drowned and eaten by an animal or, or just blown up in some explosion. Um, how can God you know, put us all back together? And obviously it's a miracle. It's a, it's a, a, a supernatural recreation from nothing. So God has our blueprint. And, and of course, I believe that... Um, our mind, which is non-material, and remember, our thoughts are non-material. You know, we can weigh our brain, um, we can measure its volume, but you can't weigh your thoughts, you can't measure the volume of your thoughts, your, your thoughts are non-material, and that's who we are. And I believe the evidence is that somehow God preserves this, and when we are given new created bodies, this uh, who we are, this non-material part of us will be preserved and we will once again have, have bodies that we can use as, as Paul talks about getting rid of the current tent that is in his current body and God will one day uh, replace it and that's the Apostle Paul who again had an amazing, miraculous experience of Jesus again after Jesus' resurrection. So... We have all this this evidence, but still for many people there's the, the narc. Well, what, what about evolution? And I was reading just recently about um, the, the platypus. Uh, my grand, I have a grandson uh, who's very interested in animals and um, uh, we often read books about animals or look up about different animals on the uh, internet and so forth. And one of the thing, ones that I think is powerful evidence for creation is the platypus because um, it's a very unique animal that really just doesn't fit any of the evolutionary trees. And to me, it's powerful evidence how God created animals and, and put together a whole range, a whole huge variety of different functions. When we look through the fossil record, there are some amazing animals and uh, you know dinosaurs, insects, reptiles, fish, and so forth that lived in the past, and of course the evolutionary model attempts to trace these through 
some sort of development of the physical changes. And mind you, of course, we're now that we've been able to map uh, the genomes of le- least of living uh, animals where we have uh, a, a DNA availability, we can see that um, the uh, genomic patterns, the patterns in the DNA, don't fit what we would guess as being the, the physiological uh, development of, you know, development of arm, arms, legs and, and so forth, this sort of progression um, that you see in diagrams in illustrating the supposed uh, course of evolution. The platypus, on the other hand, uh, or the duck-billed platypus, is a combination of really unusual parts. Yeah, so you, we've got the, the duck-bill, we've got a mammal, but it's an egg-laying mammal. And although it suckles its young, it doesn't have nipples. It's got uh, little patches uh, for the milk. Uh, again, it, it, as a mammal, it, it lays eggs. So it's, it's very, very different in, in, in many ways. Matter of fact, when it was first discovered and a specimen sent back to um, England in the uh, late 1700s, the uh, taxidermist who examined it thought it was a fake, thought that somebody had sewed uh, a duckbill onto, you know, some sort of little mammal animal. Um, so it's quite a fascinating thing how it's, it's completely different to, uh, to other animals in so many ways, and there's a lot to it. So when we uh, talk about these uh, animals, they're a member of what we call the monotreme family, uh, which includes the patapus and then four species of echidna, which are uh, anteaters. Um, and so these are mammals that lay eggs instead of giving birth to live young. It's interesting that these monotremes, including the uh, platypus, sense their prey through electrolocation. And so they sense their prey through electrical signals. Also, of course, the male uh, platypus um, has a spur on its hind foot that delivers a very painful a venom. And so it's one of the very few species of venomous mammals that are around. And so um, you've got this little uh, furry animal that uh, has a duck bill, a beaver-like tail. Um, it has otter-type feet with little webs. And that's why I said it really baffled the European scientists, particularly back in, um, in 1799 uh, when they first examined it and thought it was a fake. So when you, and they're quite an interesting animal, I've only ever seen a few. I've seen a couple in the wild while bushwalking in Tasmania and um, I've seen them uh, also in, the, in, in, in zoos. Uh, I haven't seen any platypuses on the east coast of uh, the mainland Australia. Uh, they generally uh, avoid the bright, you know, daylight. So on a cloudy day, you're more likely to see them. Um, or in in a shady, particularly in a rainforest area, where there's a lot of shade, you can see them during the day. So they're in many ways like a little otter, um, but the um, the flat uh, tail, the body is. 
and broad flat tail of the platypus are actually covered with a, a dense brown fur that's actually biofluorescent, which is also you know quite interesting and and different um, to other uh, mammals, and it traps a layer of insulating air. Um, at the moment, I don't think scientists understand the purpose of the biofluorescence. So I haven't been able to find anything on that. But the fur, it's quite waterproof and, and traps air and keeps the animal quite warm. Uh, it's textured a bit like the fur of a mole. So the platypus has this broad beaver-like tail, um, which it stores a lot of uh, fat for energy, and um, it has webbing and the front feet. Um, and so when it's walking on land, uh, it, it folds the uh, sort of its little paws up a little front feet up and sort of sort of walks on its knuckles and that way protects the the webbing. Now the elongated snout, which looks like a um, a duck's bill, um, again is covered with this soft skin that forms the bill, and the nostrils are located on the um, the top uh, surface there, and the eyes and ears are just behind the snout um, in a groove. And it's interesting that when the platypus swims underwater, um, the eyes and ears are actually closed. And that's why it senses where it's going and, and so forth by this echolocation, uh, electrolocation. Uh, 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 they're not a very big animal. Um, I suppose they're about, you know, uh, 50 centimetres long. Uh, for the males, the females are a little bit smaller. And they weigh about um, um, one to two and a half kilos. Um, they have a slightly lower body temperature than most placental mammals. So the body temperature of mammals is 37 degrees like us, uh, whereas for um, platypus runs about 32. Um, also, the platypus has a, a reptilian-type gait, so it walks like a reptile. Um, because it has legs, its legs are on the side of its body rather than underneath. But like uh, mammals, um, it's uh, the bones that construct its uh, ear are fully incorporated in the skull. But the platypus has extra bones in the shoulder girdle uh, that are not found in other mammals. And so from an evolutionary picture, it's very, very different to put this uh, species together. Um, has different uh, uh, jaw-opening muscles and so forth to um, uh, mammals. Um, and, of course, it's quite fascinating that young platypus have three teeth uh, in each of the uh, uh, jaws, uh, which they use just before or just after leaving the breeding burrow and then, uh, we, uh, which, and they you lose, sorry, they lose um, the, uh, these teeth just uh, when they mature. Uh, so they, and they're, um, uh, they're replaced with sort of uh, grinding um, sort of areas. So it's, um, you know, quite fascinating there. And when you think about it, right, this little animal is programmed by its DNA. Our evolution has to account for um, all these amazing properties in the DNA uh, arising by random mutations and random blind mutations. And, of course, 
the whole argument that they put up for uh, evolution is, well, you've got these gradual changes from you know one uh, animal into another next species into and, and so forth. There's so variation. But when you look at the platypus, its, it's DNA is just you know, from all over the place. And so to me, this is evidence to me of a creation, a designer who designed, decided to put a bit from this, a bit from there, a bit from this and a bit from there, all together and made this amazing animal. I'm fascinated by the electrolocation. Um, uh, with this electrolocation, of course, it's got electroreception um, areas and these receptors are arranged in stripes on its bill, giving it high sensitivity to the sides and below. So what happens is it's moving its head. As it swims along, it's swinging its head around and this then, uh, again, as it as it's moving its head and it picks up a density of a increased density of a signal in one direction rather, it enables us to, of course, find location. So it's interesting that the monotremes are the only mammal, mammals apart from the Guiana dolphin that have this sense of electroreception. Um, and the platypus's electroreception has been measured as the most sensitive of any of the other um, monotremes. And so the platypus, when it's feeding, closes its eyes and ears and nose when it's diving. Um, and its electroreceptors actually detect tiny electric currents generated by the muscular contractions of its prey, which might be, you know, little worms, little shrimp, these sort of things that are swimming around, um, insects, other insects that are in the uh, water there. So as they're moving, of course, they're producing slightly little voltages that are stimulating their uh, muscle contractions, and the platypuses can pick this up. Now, I think this is absolutely fascinating. And when you think of the design features in this, like these receptors have to be set up and and designed. They've got to be incorporated into the DNA. You've got to have the structure, the electrical networks for these all have to be programmed in. And then, of course, the uh, nervous system to uh, take these um, the impulses generated by its receptors to its brain. The brain then has to have logic systems so that it can interpolate, uh, in, in, in interpolate these uh, signals in terms of direction um, and then sort of activate its, uh, its need to swim in those directions. When you think of the control systems to this, right, in terms of the DNA, but also the, the DNA that is required to set up the assembly of these circuits to actually measure this. So not only do you have to have the design, but as a little baby platypus is growing in its egg, um, you have to have also a program to assemble the relative cells to make up these construction. Now, again, for a system such as this to arise by blind chance mutation, so I think we can all see it's absolutely impossible. It's absolutely powerful evidence for a creator. It's interesting that, uh, as I said, there are uh, these electro um, re- receptors there 
Um, and uh, they've done quite a few experiments with this. The, the experiments have shown the platypus will even react to an artificial swim if small electric current has passed through it. And as I said, these electroreceptors are located in rows on the skin of the bill. Um, but there are also mechanical receptors for touch that are distributed across the area of the bill. Uh, and there's sort of evidence that suggests that the platypus can sort of feel these little electric pulses here, yeah, much like we would feel something we, we touch as well. And again, of course, they're not quite sure exactly, but they sense that um, uh, the platypus not only detects the signals, but can detect signal strength. Um, and um, as, a, as a, particularly as it's swinging, and this again gives us an idea, gives it an idea of distance, as well as location that gets from the fact that it's rotating its head from from time to time. Yeah, I think it's quite fascinating. And this also enables the platypus to hunt uh, and find prey in in murky, muddy water. So you can imagine that uh, after heavy rain, you have a lot of soil washed into uh, the uh, uh, creeks and rivers um, that would may greatly reduce visibility, but the platypus can still um, find food under these conditions. It's interesting that the eyes are quite different to those of uh, mammals. Uh, so, for example, they contain uh, double cones, um, and most mammals don't, um, and so the uh, eyes are more similar to that found, for example, in a hagfish. Uh, they don't, platypus, of course, don't use their eyes under underwater. Uh, it's quite uh, fascinating how they're, they're quite uh, different. Of course, the biofluorescence aspect of the fur, too, is another very interesting uh, aspect that gives the platypus a bluish-green biofluorescent grow in, in, um, under UV black light. Um, of course, the platypus, yeah, they feed on, as I said, little worms and shrimp and, and so forth. Again, uh, platypus are quite different um, to many uh, the other uh, mammals in that the female wild has two ovaries, uh, only the left one is functional. Um, and uh, it lays small leathery eggs uh, that are uh, quite small, about 11 millimetre in diameter, and uh, quite quite round, much rounder than uh, bird eggs. Um, they, um, they develop in utero for about 28 days, and then they have about 10 days of external incubation. So it's quite different to, say, a chicken egg, which spends about one day in the tract and then 21 days externally. And the um, uh, female uh, platypus uh, curl around the little incubating eggs and keep them warm that way. Um, and so during the... Um, it, uh, the embryo goes through different development phases, of course, then... And in the last phase, uh, the egg tooth appears. This is quite uh, interesting for it uh, getting out of the egg. So again, when you think, all these things have to be programmed in for the uh, little um, amazing design features. And of course, you know, one wonders how can these things develop by random chance blind mutations. 
So, um, oh, there are so many, uh, you know, fascinating things about the, um, about, you know, platypuses, really. Um, the young platypus, uh, by the way, are called puggles, P-U-G-G-L-E-S, <laughs> which is a really, really cute name, I think. It's interesting, as we're talking about the uh, genome, um, the draft version of the genome sequence was published in Nature back in 2008, uh, on the 8th of May, Nature, and it revealed both uh, reptilian and mammalian uh, elements, um, as well as two genes found previously only in birds, amphibians and fish. And, um, of course, uh, back in uh, 2021, uh, a more complete uh, genome was published. And it turns out this creature is no less strange than uh, in terms of its genetic code. So it's got about 18,500 protein coding genes. Um, and so the platypus is you know, fairly similar to a lot of other mammals. But the platypus shares some of its genetic parts just with mammals, reptiles, birds, and uh, the ordering of these parts is not what we would expect. Um, and so this mixed-up uh, nature of the outside body is further reflected um, in the body plan. Um, and so it has a whole lot of uh, reptile features, as we talked about, bird-like features in terms of type of yolk protein, some of its chromosomes, um, mammal-like features in terms of casein, milk genes and so forth, uh, marsupial features in terms of antibacterial proteins and so forth. Um, so a very, very fascinating uh, structure. And again, its genome powerfully points to specific creation. And in my view, again, powerful evidence that the account in the Bible of creation is the true account of how we came to be here. You've been listening to Faith and Science. If you want to re-listen to these programs, Google 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the radio and uh, listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 